everyone, this is Matt with the PT Step Up Podcast through APTA Kentucky. I have James with me. James, how are you doing today? I'm doing amazing. Fantastic. Good to hear. Good to hear. So we kind of had a little conversation before we started recording here, and we talked about ultrasound. And you mentioned that you are ultrasound certified. What does that mean? So in the uh, APCA, they've got a designating agency to determine who is a registered musculoskeletal sonographer. And this can be from just about any profession that has a higher degree of education. So things like physicians, surgeons, nurse practitioners, chiropractors, uh, obviously physical therapists can sit for the exam. And it's a fairly strenuous exam. It's got about a 60% pass rate. And unlike a lot of things that are in the PT world where if you get a 78% you pass, this is 80%. And one of my nemesis's, nemesi, (laughs) however it's pronounced, Mm -hmm. in undergrad was physics. And so lo and behold, it comes back to bite you again and 30% (laughs) of the exam was physics. So it uh, came back to uh, challenge me, but I was able to get that designation. And so because of it, um, in addition to being a PT, I'm a registered musculoskeletal sonographer. Outstanding. Okay. So, so then what benefits, what abilities do you have with that? Oh, it's pretty cool. So from a financial side, if you have your RMSK designation, then you can bill for a sonography examination and you can get reimbursed by insurance without question. And oh. so it's great as an untimed code on top of the rest of the physical exam. But just from a purely understanding orthopedics and what's going on with the patient, it's really enlightened me for a lot of things. Uh, I really used to pride myself on diagnostics Mm -hmm. and understanding what was going on with patients. But when I added a secondary element to take a look at not only the axial skeleton, but the extremities as well with ultrasound, I was able to figure out that a lot of the things that I thought as a general sensitive diagnosis, like, oh, the shoulder pain, rotator cuffs involved, I could be a lot more specific by saying, okay, well, the biceps pulley system is torn near that superior glenohumeral ligament, as an example. And then I can do a lot more about it from a physical therapy standpoint, or I can do something like electrical dry needling to help uh, create a greater scaffold for that tissue. Or I could, like I currently do with uh, another physician, where I can identify with a physical therapy manual exam, which is really not very prominent in the uh, physician world. They don't know exactly what an end feel is, what exactly does it mean with a unilateral PA to A transverse uh, pressure, what that means. Mm. Uh, Translate that with now some sort of imaging to see this feel and this tissue is injured because of this feel. And then I can communicate with that to a physician so that if they've got something on their end where it's on our place we use regenerative medicine, that can help bolster that tissue up and then rehab them much more appropriately. Huh, that's really interesting. So how many of how many PTs in Kentucky have this designation? Um, two. Me two. and my friend Kevin. Wow. Only two. And there's only four people, uh, two physicians and two PTs in the state of Kentucky. That's nuts. So so then if you don't mind me asking, where did you get this designation? What schooling did you go through? Like all of uh, yeah, I, I had a lot of uh, training through a lot of different organizations that helped out, um, just online classes that were helpful as well, YouTube videos, uh, some on the job training uh, because we use that for ultrasound guided injections here. Mm. And But nothing was perfect. The first time I took the exam, I got in the 70s, and obviously, like I said, that's a fail. And so I just studied even harder, just really got down a whole lot of things with the sonography exams and especially the physics. And then I was able to pass it the second time. And so 
uh, now that I'm very confident with that because I do about on an average day, five to 12 scans, full, full torso with full uh, write-ups on what's going on with them. Um, I can now just do this on anybody without even thinking about it too much. It's uh, fairly easy and it really, it's an enjoyable part of my practice because I like to see what's, why is this person hurting? Mm. Yeah, I know you hurt when you lift up, you can't move from there, but why? And once I can figure that out, then I can do something about it, which is pretty cool. No, I completely agree with that. And I think it really kind of speaks to the diversity of practice, you know? So, so, you know, I kind of talked about my background. I teach uh, full time and I always tell my students, you know, that your diverse practice, you know, the ability and the amount of settings you can work in is far beyond when I graduated PT school. I graduated PT school in 2002 and there were only a couple different options. Now, I mean, with ultrasound and NCVs and EMGs, I mean, there's so many other things to do. So, so then I'm going to give you a hypothetical. Let's say I'm a PT student and I'm interested in this. I just took the ultrasound course or the portion of an ultrasound course in school. Um, what advice would you give me? So get really good at just being a PT first. Okay. <laughs> Too many people try to be ultra specialized earlier on, but what happens is they miss so much by not being good at the basics. And then they'll come to conclusions because they have this small window that they're seeing from that they miss the forest from the trees. Okay. So a, a new student, take your time. If you want to be a good orthopedic sonographer within musculoskeletal medicine, you got to be a good orthopedic physical therapist first. And that means just getting some time in the clinic, getting a good mentor, going through a residency, something like that, that can help you out to get to that point. And then after you start to get good at that stuff, then you can start to add the sonography into your exam. And when you're doing that, there's a lot of different areas that are out there. There's some certifications. Uh, if you really want to dive in heavy, there's some fellowships that are really good out there. I'm a professor for one of them. Mm -hmm. And uh, when you start to take that in, you, you've, you've got to do it a lot. It's kind of like when you're trying to get an end feel for a joint. You don't just get the perfect understanding of what like a capsular end feel for a glenohumeral joint feels like by doing it once. You got to do it on a whole lot of normal people to feel what's normal because there's a variety of things. Sure. And then you've got to understand, okay, that's kind of weird. Mm -hmm. And that's what abnormal is. So that's when these students, you know, after they can get that feel for the body, then they start to look at some scans. And so when that is incorporated into their daily life, they may need to buy some sort of cheap handheld one and just scan everybody, not knowing what they're looking at. Don't make any conclusions and don't tell patients what's wrong. Just tell them that they're taking a look and they're not really sure what they're looking at yet. They're learning and thank you for you know offering up their time. Sure. But then you got to you got to get a formal education associated with that and especially helpful to get some sort of mentoring to give you guidance. Well, and I think you bring up a very good point where you know, the, the education obviously is a big piece of it. The practice in, you know, the repetition is probably even a bigger piece of it. And then having that mentored practice. So, so then, you know, obviously you're more steeped in this culture than I am. Is, is there any talk to adding a fellowship or residency for this type of work? Because personally, well, I think that would be great. Uh, there's some different uh, residencies out there. Um, okay. I teach for Spinal Manipulation Institute, and we have a certification, diploma, and fellowship program that covers during the certification process. You'll be able to just basically scan the upper extremities and lower extremities. Okay. And then diploma, uh, there's an RMSK prep course as well as a physics, which is essential if you actually do want to have that RMSK designation, which really, if 
if I'm hearing from anybody that they do sonography work and they have that RMSK designation, then I am more likely to trust them because mm. it, there's some sort of standardization with it. And if they really, really wanted to go down the loophole with it, there's nobody else in, honestly, that I know of in the world that's doing axial skeleton sonography, as well as application to regenerative medicine, which is the other two classes within our fellowship. Hmm. Because it takes a lot of work to understand what you're seeing on an ultrasound for somebody's axial skeleton. There's a whole lot of fascial layers, a lot of things with the joint that are involved, let alone what's going on with the muscles themselves. And they all contribute considerably to somebody's persistent pain, especially with my gosh, whiplash associated disorder, the amount of stuff that's missed on an MRI, but that you'd pick on an ultrasound, it's amazing to me. That's really interesting because, you know, everyone wants that MRI, that gold standard. And it's really interesting that, you know, we can provide a less expensive, quicker, more point of care, right? Because that's one of the big selling points of ultrasound is you can do it right then and there in the office. And no ionizing radiation, right? No magnets. You don't have to sit there for 45 minutes. There's a ton of benefits to this. So, and obviously in your evidence of this, PTs are doing it and doing it on a regular basis. Um, so then, you know, getting into like Practice Act, and I know that you know, diagnostic imaging is a big hot button issue this year for APTA Kentucky. Have you had any issues with practicing this in the state? No, no, not at all. And so I practice under my own license. There's okay. been no problem with diagnostics. However, in some other states, uh, Texas is an example that if you are doing ultrasound there, um, you can put on the uh, write-up that signs and symptoms are similar to this type of uh, condition. Whereas in other states, you can just outright say that, yeah, that's a rotator cuff tear. Interesting. And, okay. and it's uh, just silliness i think that you know that somebody who's gone through all that training that goes through the exact same training and sits in the same exam that there's a surgeon next to him in that same exam class and somehow they're not smart enough to come up with the same thing that this guy is even though they're taking the same test it's pretty wild so so is there any reasoning behind that texas loophole if you will or is it just a matter of i you know i'm a physician i'm a practitioner and i want to keep that diagnosis to me Probably the, the latter. Okay. And, you know, healthcare is a business, and the more people have the ability to take care of people, the less uh, that a couple people get lots and lots of money. And sure. so that's a, a, it's kind of a pessimistic view on just kind of how things go. But uh, really, I mean, why else would you stop a doctoring profession from being able to see patients under the guise of it's for the safety of the population? It's really <laughs> how many people die from doing rotator cuff exercises? How many people die from surgeries? <laughs> Well, you're, really. you're, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. And, you know, I, you know, can I give you my background? I, I was in the last bachelor's class in PT. Um, so, you know, I've seen a ton of change and a ton of very, very good change. You know, we didn't ever think about the word diagnosis. You know, you know, we maybe gave a PT diagnosis, which was very vague and very, you know, in, indescribable, you know, would be the word. It really didn't describe anything. You know, now, yeah. you know, I, I'm talking to someone like you and, you know, you're saying, yeah, this person has a rotator cuff tear, right? You know, so tons of change that has happened. That's outstanding. So then are you using diagnostic ultrasound only for assessment and diagnosis or are you using for intervention treatment exercise as well? Um, I will do it for interventions as well. For certain patients, I'll be using the ultrasound after I've found the tissues. If it's a small enough lesion, then using a, a dry needle uh, to be able to be placed into very particular small areas. 
if you're seeing small tears or tendinosis or capsular uh, distension that's uh, a little bit hypersensitive, you want to make sure that you're applying that small needle to the best possible spot so it can have an effect. And so if you're using the needle to guide the uh, placement and you're going to get right on that lesion, what starts to happen is you can actually fill in some of the gaps. And it's pretty interesting to see these areas that are on an image that would be indicative of like a tendinosis, um, especially if there's small anechoic holes, if you start to poke into that area, the body starts to one becomes less hypersensitive around the area. But because of that new tissue damage that's intentional and uh, beneficial, you're going to start to fill it in the gaps and that area starts to get smaller and smaller and smaller. And I've done the same thing with calcifications within tendons, you can just start to poke it and prod it. And mm. it'll be very sensitive when you hit it, so you know you're on the right spot. But they'll start to become less sensitive, and the smaller ones, uh, they just start to dissipate over time. Hmm. That is extremely interesting. And you can actually watch this and record it, and and really, literally see healing happen. Uh, that just yeah, that amazes well. me. That is amazing. Oh, yeah. Me. yeah, fantastic. Good. So so then, where do you see the application of this going in the future? You know, is this something that where it's, it's there and it's just going to be there and it's not really going to get any better or is like the sky's the limit for this thing? When it comes to using the sonography, I think that what's going to happen is uh, a lot of these really hungry PTs that are here. Uh, and these are the same people that I've talked about that uh, had in their undergraduate biology, their lab partner is now a physician mm -hmm. and uh, their other lab partners like a dental surgeon that type of thing right. these are very smart people with the same type a personalities and now they've got the ability to do something that's the, the top of that their profession can do the top of their intellect that's very driven that's going to be in every clinic soon we're, we're going to start to see these people really just flourishing and it's going to be cool to see because they're going to understand diagnostically, they're going to be able to be on the, the edge of what's happening. They're going to know what's happening, which is going to make them stand out as clinicians, mm -hmm. going to make their clinics stand out amongst the many others. And then when it's coming time for any sort of interventions, we won't feel so stuck. Like, all right, we've worked with this person for a month. Why aren't they getting better? And then you can clearly see, oh, okay, well, I forgot to see this part has some instability. And I can actually do some work there, not only with an internal intervention, like maybe if there's a small lesion that a needle would be able to help out with, but also, well, gosh, I didn't consider that there could be labral pathology with this rotator cuff tear. And you can see the labral tear. That will change up a lot of the things that I would do from an intervention standpoint. And now that we've got this information that we didn't have earlier, we can start to get this person a lot better otherwise and get better long-term uh, information so they can maintain their bodies over time. That's extremely interesting. So, so then... In, in that vein, so you mentioned kind of a lot of outpatient applications, right? So are there any other settings that are using this? So, because I work mostly acute care when I'm in the clinic, I could see great application for this in the emergency room or a couple days post accident or whatever, when things are starting to settle down and the person says, hey, I still have XYZ pain happening. Are, are there, is there any talk for other settings for this as well? Uh, people who are emergency room PTs, uh, I'm not sure how many people are doing this, but I cannot see any reason why you wouldn't do that unless sure. your hospital prefers that you just use MRIs for everybody to walk in. Um, but from that standpoint, from an emergency department, having that in hand and being able to actually identify everything, it will help you to triage people a lot better to determine, okay, I'm seeing some sort of 
for example, weird cortical irregularity around this ankle and their, uh, the Ottawa ankle rules seem to be uh, positive for this person too. Let's get them from an image or it could be either way. I don't see anything from here. Ottawa ankle rules are negative. Okay, this person more likely just has a sprain versus a fracture mm-hmm. and it's need emergency management, but they can be followed up by their primary care musculoskeletal PT afterwards. And that's where I'm thinking emergency department. Sure. Now, it also potentially could have uh, application with wound care if you're just trying to trace from a low level degree for how tissue is starting to heal over time. You could also monitor that in the same vein. Mm. That's extremely interesting because you know, I really kind of latched on your last answer there because you did a really good job of blending the clinical reasoning piece, right? The diagnostic imaging piece and clinical prediction rules, right? With using the Ottawa. So, and they really kind of that algorithmic approach is another huge change that's happened in PT. You know, I will say that the first article on evidence-based practice was, I think, 1993. And, you know, it just always amazes me how evidence-based and how, I hate to use the word scientific, but we've gotten much more scientific with how we're approaching these patients. So, outstanding. I like it. So good. Uh-huh. Yeah. So any last words on ultrasound or where you see it going? Well, uh, I've said this to a few people and I still remember when uh, I first started to learn about dry needling, uh, I thought it was amazing. And I knew this was going to be a big part of practice mm-hmm. and it really blew up over the course of the 10 years since I started learning that. I see that this is that next phase for PT, that musculoskeletal ultrasound in the hands of just so many PTs out there, especially an outpatient, this is the next dry needling. Absolutely. No, I completely agree with you. And I I think it's going to be a springboard for other abilities as well. You know, obviously we have x-ray and MRI, you know, on the uh, legislative block. And I know, I think we're up to 12 states that allow diagnostic imaging for physical therapists. I think that was the latest number. Um, so, you know, we are, we're moving forward, definitely. So it's, it's great stuff. Absolute great stuff. Well, James, uh, I appreciate it. I appreciate your time and keep doing what you're doing. We're, we're proud of you. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you very much.